welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and we are about a month away from the start of the NBA regular season. And so we're going to start doing some looking ahead to uh, that 2022-23 campaign. And to help me do that, as always, my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. We're back. As I guess, would this be kind of like... If, if this podcast was segmented into seasons, would this be like the start of the new season? You know, it's September. It's like the start of a new school year, new fiscal calendar for most <laughs> workplaces. We're now starting to turn our attention firmly to the 2022-23 season. We're both co-hosting together, just the two of us like old time. Like, I feel like this, if, if we had seasons, this feels like it is the start, start of season of- five, right? Season six. No, come on. Yeah. Season one was like uh, a trial run at the end of the 2017-18 season, I believe. Season one was like, you know when a new show starts, but it starts in the spring and it's only like six episodes, then it comes back for a full season in the fall. Yeah. That was like our season one, 2017-18. 2018-19, season two. 2019-20, season three. 2021, season four. 21-22, season five. In 2022-2023, season six of Pound the Rock. I'm not counting. that We came in basically in the playoffs in 2018. I don't think you can count that as a full season. That's Why more like a pilot a episode. Season. Well, all right. <laughs> Whatever the case. I, I don't want to say a like sixth season. That's going to make season me. 5B. <laughs> yeah. Um, start of season five of Pound the Rock. The onset of the 2022-23 season in the NBA We're going to spend the bulk of this episode uh, talking about some teams that we're interested in and specifically teams that we think are going to overachieve and some that we think are going to underachieve. Before we get to that, probably should hit on this Robert Sarver situation, a long, long investigation into his workplace behavior has finally concluded with the NBA levying a one-year suspension, and a $10 million fine that, of course, is a, a drop in the bucket for somebody like Robert Sarver, who owns a multi-billion dollar sports franchise, but uh, is also the maximum allowable fine by the terms agreed upon by the NBA's Board of Governors. So I know a lot of people were super disappointed and underwhelmed by that punishment, including some members of the NBPA who have been outspoken about how disappointed they were given the nature of the findings of that investigation and the things that Robert Sarver was found to have done and the toxic workplace environment that he has created within that son's organization. I'll put it to you, I guess. I mean, what, what more would you have liked to see happen here? Given the fact that you can gripe about the structure of this, like how this works in terms of like sports franchise ownership, I think that's a much bigger conversation and maybe one that we're not going to delve too deep into on this podcast. But is there something that you felt like could have been done or something that could have gone further that the NBA didn't do here? Look, really, the only thing is that he could have lost his team, right? You'd hope that they could have booted him from the NBA. And, and, you know, if you read the report, and I don't think it's a surprise to anyone, given things we had heard about Sarver, that 
I think most of us would come to the conclusion he does not belong in the NBA. The NBA should be above this and should not want this guy to have anything to do with their league. And I completely agree with, you know, anyone who has that opinion. I am of the same opinion. Um, Obviously, it doesn't add up, okay? Like, even the report, you know, it found that um, in terms of racial, what they called racial insensitivity, on at least five occasions between 2004 to 2016, one of which was a free agency recruitment, by the way, don't know how this came up, but... Sarver repeated the N-word when recounting the statements of others, despite being warned about, you know, said actions back in 2004, engaged in inequitable conduct towards female employees, made many sex-related comments in the workplace, made inappropriate comments about the physical appearance of female employees and other women, and on several occasions engaged in inappropriate physical contact toward male employees. And yet, the investigation by this independent firm concludes its findings by saying it found no finding that Mr. Sarver's workplace misconduct was motivated by racial or gender-based animus. So quite clearly, like this doesn't add up. And again, I agree with everyone who's pointing out that obvious fact that like, how do you, how does, you know, point A and point B come together there? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, the, the, the findings, you know, uh, talk about, and I think Adam Silver brought this up too in his press conference that you know, some people as part of the investigation, many people also had glowing reviews of Sarver. And, you know, part of the reason I guess they didn't boot him out is because um, there was evidence of steps that Sarver and the Suns organization had taken in recent years to improve the workplace environment and all this. And get very clearly, if you read the report, I think anyone with common sense would come to the conclusion this guy shouldn't be in the NBA. And also the findings don't really add up when you read it. Having said all that, and I'm not trying to defend Adam Silver. He doesn't need my defending. And, it, you know, again, the report is 100% gross. And it's gross that Sarver remains in place, given what we now all know. But unfortunately, logistics sometimes get in the way of what seems like common sense. And that seems to be what's happening here. You know, to me, the issue is more the findings by this independent party, like the third party that conducted this investigation. Now, Adam Silver is the commissioner at the end of the day. Obviously, he could read that report and still say, okay, well, the fact, despite the fact the finding says there was no racial or, you know, gender related animus, I still don't like this and I'm still going to push for him to be removed. But again, it is a process. And I think even uh, thinking back to the, you know, when the Sterling stuff happened, I think it's three quarters of the owners must. That's right. Right. So it, it works out to 23. So the way I see it, again, not to defend Adam Silver, not clearly not to defend anything Robert Sarver did, but. The way I see it, and given what happened with Donald Sterling, is if Adam Silver believed that he had 23-plus owners in his corner to remove Robert Sarver as the Suns owner, I think he would have removed Robert Sarver as the team owner. 100% and, he would have. Right, that's, and, and, that's how this that's, works. Right, and that's what I'm saying. You know, I, I get that the easy thing is to be like, wow, like how could Adam Silver just not read this report and do it? But unfortunately... There are, you know, steps he has to take. And if he thought he had the backing of the owners, which he needs to do this, right, um, to do the, something that was unprecedented until the Donald Sterling stuff happened, I think he would have done it. And also, not to get into like the whole legal ramifications, but even just considering things that would hold up in court if Sarver were to like take this to court in the event that the NBA did try to forcibly remove his team would be... Again, this just ridiculous finding that he could point to and say, hey, they, you know, came up, it, it was their idea to come up with this third party investigation to make sure there were no biases. And the investigation found that none of my actions were due to racial or, you know, gender based right. animus. Again, seems like absolute BS that that was the findings, but unfortunately, those were the findings. And 
you have to think about whether it would hold up in court. And again, I, I don't think Silver would have had 23 owners in his corner because if he did, I think Robert Sarver would be out of the league right now. So, you know, okay, I don't yeah. think I'm breaking any news here with, with any of that information. Um, and I'm not sure like how you feel about it, if you agree or disagree. But again, I don't think this is as much what people are making it out to be, which is like, oh, like, you know, Silver didn't come down hard enough or whatever. I think it's, I don't think there was much more he could have done, even if he might have wanted to. And in terms of what he did end up doing, 10 million, while it might seem like a drop in the bucket for, you know, billionaires and very rich people, is the maximum allowable fine that the NBA's constitution allows him to hand out. So he gave the maximum fine he could. He banned the guy for a year. Other than that, I think, you know, the argument might be more with the o- the other owners than it is with Silver himself. Yeah, or just the concept of ownership in the NBA to begin with. But again, that's a much bigger conversation that is getting into complete structural overhaul that feels a bit pie in the sky if we're talking about it now. But to your point, there is no universe in which 23 of the NBA's board of governors wanted to oust Robert Sarver or force a sale and Adam Silver for whatever reason overrode those 23 owners right. like the board of governors that's who Adam Silver represents right. you know like he is he is their mouthpiece their instrument essentially and so ultimately in terms of doing something like forcing a sale like for people comparing it to the Donald Sterling situation like that is the difference they had enough ownership support to force a Donald Sterling sale, but Adam Silver definitely could have been more tactful in the way that he communicated this, like coming out and saying, well, this is different than, you know, if an employee had done these things and would have obviously lost their job because Robert Sarver as an owner has certain rights that an employee doesn't have. Like, even if that is unfortunately true, right? you didn't need to say that. Like, you know, like <laughs> yeah, he, he said didn't... the quiet part out loud, like, right. I think using the word rights was a big no-no as well. Like for to sure, make it, for right? sure. But like, also, I don't think that he said anything that was untrue. Like, it's no, really neither. unfortunate that what he said is true, but that is the nature of this. And, then, and, that, and that's where we get into, I, I don't know what the fix is. Like, I remember, I think it was Howard Beck was on Zach Lowe's podcast a couple of years ago, and they were talking about James Dolan. And the idea of like Knicks fans just being stuck with James Dolan and there's nothing they can do to get rid of him. And, you know, Howard Beck proposed this idea of sports teams being sort of like trusts, right? Like they are public institutions in a lot of ways. And so why not have that be like a trust that can be managed by a governor for a set term? You know, maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10 years. But, you know, the public would have some say in how that institution is run and managed, as opposed to there just being this one person who is ultimately practically undeposable, indeposable. I don't know if that's even a word, but like you, you can't get rid of these people. And like the, the Donald Sterling situation was like a crazy outlier. And it took him literally being recorded on tape talking about hating black people in order for that to happen. And it's still like he walks out of that situation with $2 billion. You know, poor guy had to sell his NBA team and pocketed $2 billion in the sale. Like it's- And then went on Anderson Cooper uh, for one of the most chaotic interviews in television history, if you recall. I don't recall. But Come, Are you serious? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember You don't that. remember Donald Sterling going on Anderson Cooper 
on national TV in the United States, on CNN, watched all, all around the world in the days following that cluster F and basically like showing his whole ass, like throughout the interview that was supposed to be him like going on this uh, damage control, like PR damage control tour ended up just him completely ruining what was left of his own reputation by saying things like, what has Magic Johnson done other than get AIDS and things of that nature? Yeah, I, I can't believe you don't remember this this interview. Like it, uh, th- there was another part where he's like talking about supporting Magic back in the day, and obviously just because Donald Sterling's an idiot and could barely speak English, he said something like, um, "I think the, the 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 famous line from that interview is like him saying, and when he had those AIDS, I was supportive. Yeah, Donald Sterling was an idiot." Can't believe you you don't remember that interview. Yeah, but neither can I. Anyway, <laughs> but anyway, no. To your point, and and like you know the Beck idealist that that sounds great, but it's also very pie in the sky because as much as it is, it these sports entities seem like public institutions because of the support they get from the public. At the end of the day, it is private enterprise. Like as much as the public becomes part of it, these are really just like a, it's a private business that. The public is just really invested in emotionally, but not actually financially. Uh, well, well, okay, unless you talk about like stadiums yes. that get built I, with with see, taxpayer okay, money, completely and... agree, which they shouldn't be. But and you could say, well, fans are invested, you know, by buying tickets and jerseys. But in terms of the day to day operations of the business, obviously the fans don't have a stake in it. It's not like, oh, uh, you know, the the Suns are worth less today, and therefore, you know, Suns fans now their portfolios drop. Like that's obviously not how it works. Well, that's so how I mean, like the Green Bay Packers, for instance. Right? Okay, like, that's different. Yeah, that is actually a publicly they're a publicly owned team. That's a model that I think maybe in a more idealistic scenario, I, I think you would probably like to see other sports franchises follow. You know, where it is. A little bit more of a of an entity that belongs to the people. I definitely don't disagree with that. But that's I, I don't have anything to add other than that. Like it's unfortunate that this is the state of things, but appealing to the morality of NBA owners sadly just feels like wasted breath, uh, especially in a situation where their own interests are at stake and where doing the moral thing might set a precedent that could place their own positions in jeopardy. Like even when the board of governors did get on board with forcing Sterling to sell, you got the sense that they did so begrudgingly. I I even remember Mark Cuban said something to the effect of it's a slippery slope at the time when he was asked what the NBA should do about Sterling. So that's the situation. Like the rest of the league's owners don't want to set any kind of precedent that could lead to them one day being forced to sell their team also. And we can absolutely be outraged and disappointed in them. But I don't think it's surprising either that this is what has happened, unfortunately. Yeah, me neither. Uh, Okay, let's leave that nastiness behind and talk about some teams that, for one reason or another, we're interested in for this coming season. Like I said before, we want to talk about uh, the teams that we think are going to overachieve, the teams we think are going to underachieve. And we don't really have a a tight structure here. We can start with overachievers and then move on to underachievers, I guess. Uh, I think I've got three of each. Okay. I'm assuming we'll have some overlap 
But if not, I guess we'll end up talking about 12 teams. But hit me with your first overachieving team, the one that you feel most confident in being better. Here's where this gets a little nebulous, I guess, right? Because in terms of like expectations on a team, it's fairly anecdotal. Um, I I haven't looked at any of like the over under uh, lines, so I'm not basing it on that. I've, for me, I based it on just sort of anecdotally right. the the discourse that I have heard and seen around various teams. Um, yes. So, I, so yeah, hit me with your number one. All right, I'll be honest. I didn't rank them necessarily like in, in order where I think necessarily like most confidence. I just kind of had the teams. But the first one I'll start with, and maybe for some of our listeners, it'll be the most contentious one or they'll think, no, there's no way this team overachieves. If anything, they're the ultimate underachievers. I have actually got Philly as a team, I think is going to exceed expectations, at least in the regular season. I think um, as much as watching James Harden down the stretch and in the playoffs was concerning. And we, you know, talked about the the lack of the first step and how that is a detriment to the rest of this game and yada, yada, yada. And I, I don't think we'll ever see peak Harden again, but I do think he's better than what he showed in that run at the end with Philly there last season. I don't think he was healthy. And so I think a full season of healthy James Harden with perennial MVP candidate Joel Embiid, with Tyrese Maxey taking another leap, which you just wrote about uh, for the score app, with the additions of PJ Tucker and DeAnthony Melton, um, the latter of which is a movie we both loved. Like the same questions will remain in the postseason until. They prove otherwise, obviously. That's just the nature of the game. But if we're talking about the season as a whole and more, <clears throat> you know, I think I think more specifically today we're talking a little bit more like regular season as opposed to, you know, what's the ultimate ceiling for this team in the postseason? I think, maybe not. But in, in any event, I think at least in the regular season, I actually think the Sixers could overachieve what a lot of people see for this team because I do think there are still a lot of people with the sour taste in their mouths of just the way things looked at the end in the playoffs there and the way Harden looked down the stretch. And I think people are forgetting just how good a team with Joel Embiid, James Harden, Tyrese Maxey, and these guys can be. So I guess I want to ask what you feel like overachieving looks like for this Sixers team. Because to me, it would have to be getting out of the second round. Something that they still haven't done since 2001. Yeah, And like, if they go down in the second round again, like, I'm sorry, that's just, I, I don't know if that counts as a disappointment given, you know, how good I think Milwaukee can be, how good Boston can be, but that's not overachieving. You know, even if they win like yeah. 55, 57 that's, games. Well, that's reg- what I was thinking. I was thinking from like a regular season perspective, I can see this team winning like 55 plus games. Like but 58. At a certain point, it's like, do, do you think they're getting out of the second round? Uh, I mean... I'd say that they are one of a group of teams in the Eastern Conference that I'm having a lot of trouble right now separating from each other. Mm-hmm. And so I could say the easy answer is no, I, I don't think they'll beat this team or that team, but I'm not prepared to say that there are two teams that are clearly above the rest in the East. I think maybe the like ceilings wise, sure, we can talk about that, but yeah, no, I mean, but, but, and I'm not, I'm not saying one way or another. To me, they're like very solidly the third best team in the conference right now. I don't think they're quite on Milwaukee and Boston's level, but I kind of think they're closer to those teams than they are to like the next tier of teams in the East. So yeah, I could see them getting there for sure. Uh, I I love the additions, especially in terms of just like defensive versatility, like adding Melton and Tucker, I think is going to be a big help in that regard. I think, 
I, I'm really excited about the prospect of what Maxi can be for them. And I do think, I mean, even just like last year in the half season or less than half season that they had Harden, the trio of Harden, Maxi, and Embiid was so dominant. Like they were yeah. unbelievable when those three guys were on the floor together. And I only think that fit is going to get smoother in year two. So I think this team has a really high offensive ceiling and I think the defense is going to be better this year with the additions, you know, Melton at the point of attack, Tucker can play on the perimeter, can play on the interior. We talked when they signed him about why I felt like it was a justifiable overpay and especially the idea of him being able to, to play a small ball five in a way that they, you know, hasn't really been an option for them in the past few years. So yeah, I think they're going to be really good. I'm just thinking about it and wondering, okay, like what what would have to happen for me to call this season overachieving right. for them? For me to call it a success, really. And I think they have to get out of the second round of the playoffs for that to be the case. And as good as I think they're going to be, that's going to be a huge challenge. Who's your first overachiever? Uh, I've talked about them before, and I talked about them actually at length with Samson on our last episode. So I don't want to go too deep into it because yeah. if you've... Here's our first overlap. <laughs> the, the Pelicans. Yes. Um, I just like, I think people have forgotten how good Zion is and like what a big impact he can make for this team that down the stretch of last season was quite good, even without him. And I've seen and heard some people say they don't know like how his coming back is going to affect the balance of the rest of the team. I get that. I, I worry about it more, like much more at the defensive end of the floor, which is something we can get into, but I think this team has a chance to be so good offensively. Just think about the sheer amount of on-ball gravity that exists on this team. You look at those four guys, right? Like like Zion, JV, Ingram, McCollum. Ball in their hands, they can draw two to the ball. And that becomes super dangerous when three of those other guys can do as much damage as they can do off the ball. I think the, the maybe one exception to that is Ingram who I do think could stand to improve off of the ball. But then, you know, I mentioned CJ and his spot-up shooting ability. Uh, Valanchunas as a role man and just as somebody who will find pockets of space in the middle of the floor and is more than capable of, you know, dropping in a floater or a short mid-ranger, his touch is unbelievable. And also as someone who, like, he'll just duck in. And he's one of the few guys in the league where I feel like, He's a good enough post scorer that he will draw, you know, maybe not a hard double team, but he'll draw a stunt or he'll shade a second defender in his direction before he catches the ball. Like that's the type of off ball gravity that I'm talking about, where it's not just about three point shooting. And I think the same thing goes with, for Zion, right? Like where I, like defenses might try to gap him and ignore him when he's off the ball. But like if they do that, he will make them pay. Because if you give him a runway to rev up into a catch when he's going downhill, like you will come to regret it. And he will make you pay for playing off of him with cuts, you know, like face cuts along the baseline, 45 cuts from the wing. It's not as simple as, oh, Zion's off the ball, so we're just going to ignore him to jam up the middle of the floor. Like he has ways to make you pay for that. Um, So I just think their offense has a chance to be really, really dynamic. And, you know, defensively, that's, that's, I guess, where the rubber is going to meet the road for this team. 
And it's going to be a lot on Herb Jones' shoulders. It's going to be a lot on Ingram, who I think made huge defensive strides last year. But now, you know, he's going to have to be covering for another significant defensive minus in Zion. That, that's like the big question. Like, what is Zion going to be defensively? That's, yeah. to me, going to determine how good this team can be. But again, offensively, I, I don't think the concerns about distributing on ball reps or like any skill set overlap are going to be big issues. And they also just have more lineup flexibility now, right? Like the, I don't think they're going to be playing Jackson Hayes at the four right. very much, if at all this year. And they have Larry Nance, who I think is like a really good small ball five and option. He should off the be bench. healthy. If you remember when they got him late in the season, he was coming off a camera, what kind of surgery, but he missed a bunch of time. And when he came back, he was kind of ramping himself up by the time the playoffs got there. He's decent but i think having a healthy larry nance is going to be big for them especially defensively like when it comes to versatility and stuff yeah and then they have this trio of sophomores who just contributed important minutes in like a really competitive first round series against the number one seed and alvarado trey murphy and herb jones obviously and and murphy's like another guy like a really good shooter who's like exactly the kind of player that you want to surround someone like like zion with and, and a player they need, if you remember, like how many times over the last couple of years I've talked about their negative three-point differential. Mm-hmm. And another guy who like, yeah, if you're looking for, for somebody to sop up minutes at the four and you don't want to play, you know, obviously Zion's going to play a lot of minutes at the four, but like to avoid those kind of lineups with Jackson Hayes that were actually good in the regular season, but became totally unplayable against the Suns in the playoffs. Like Trey Murphy's a perfect guy to like bump up to the four yeah. spot and he's pretty solid defensively and can really shoot it and then you know with with Alvarado like I don't know how much upward mobility there is there with him like how much better he can get but if he's just exactly what he was last season which is a a hellish disruptor one of the preeminent pickpockets in the league uh, and just somebody who's going to like annoy an opposing point guard like bother him for 90 feet uh, and give you like enough off the dribble pop to be a serviceable backup point guard offensively. Like I think you take that and run like that's great. Uh, That's a very useful player. I don't know. Like Kyra Lewis, I guess is going to be back at some point. I don't know what the timetable is there. Like that was a a young player that I was really excited about at one point in time. Um, I just think, I think they're going to be really good. And like a team that I could see in the second round of the playoffs, as good as the Western conference is, I think this team has a chance to, to be there to win like 50 plus games and be in the second round. Dude, I have so much faith in Sim. I, I um, made an episode of Unfiltered for the Scores YouTube channel talking about the Pels as like kind of sleepy contenders. And I basically said in that video, I think the Pels can be so good this year that if Zion, and I know like that's a big if when you say if Zion can be healthy, but like two seasons ago, he played 2000 minutes, you know, played 60 plus games. So anyway, I think the Pelicans can be so good. That if, you know, Zion's that level of, of healthy and durable this year, while just being as productive as he's been through his first little bit in the NBA, combine that with how good I think the Pelicans be. I said in this video, I think Zion could be like a, a sleeper MVP candidate this year. Like, I, I'm that high on this team and on his potential. Um, one, you look at the team after CJ McCollum got there, when Ingram and McCollum were both on the court together. They scored, the Pelicans scored more efficiently than the Jazz did last season, the top-ranked Jazz offensively. The defense was a lot more competitive down the stretch of the season when, you know, they excised Garrett Temple from the rotation and started giving more minutes to Herb Jones, even Jose Alvarado. 
Even Trey Murphy, right? When the young guys started coming in, yeah. got Nance in there eventually. Yeah, scaling the, down Devontae Graham's role also really helped yes, the defense. Like Alvarado took a bunch of his minutes, and I think that was yep. pretty key. Big time. Um, in terms of your comment about uh, Ingram can probably stand to become a better off-ball threat, completely agree. And I think he will because through every step of his career, anytime you've thought Brandon Ingram needs to get better at something or get better overall, he's gotten better. I give the guy credit for just continually adding something to his game despite you know becoming a young star in the game already. Like Whether it was becoming a better playmaker because the Pelicans didn't really have enough of it just a more poised player in general, definitely becoming a better defender over time, becoming a more efficient scorer, like all this stuff he's added to his game pretty much every year. And I do think with Zion back, with McCollum beside him, with more weapons around him than he's ever had, I do think he'll become a better off-ball player. Mm -hmm. For sure, there's the questions of defense. Like, even though I said they became a more competitive defensive team, there will be questions with Zion now coming back in the lineup, especially if he can play 2,000 minutes. But I do think, and it kind of went under the radar a bit in that season when he played 2,000 minutes a couple years ago, I don't think he was a good defender by any means, but I definitely think there was a leap there from year one to year two of Zion's defense. And again, I think you project... I think, a, I think to, a leap is putting it a little strongly. I think he was better defensively than he was. Like, I think he got better defensively. He still wasn't good, but he was better. And I think if that same kind of progress, as slow as it may be, on a team that's much more competitive than any he's played for in the NBA. Like, I do think that'll help. And I think the ingredients are there for one, their offense to be elite, like among the best in the league, even despite the fact that they don't take enough threes. Uh, Trey Murphy can help in that regard, but also you you mentioned it last year, even with Zion and JV together and, and all the other things. They're just going to murder teams inside. And they have other good offensive players. Even the playmaking, like I've seen some people talk about the fact they don't really have a true point guard and this and that. It's like, mm. listen, Ingram and McCollum are both underrated playmakers, in my opinion. And again, you look at when they were both on the court last season, the offense was absolutely humming. The assist rates were pretty good. Like, I think there there is a surprisingly competent level of playmaking between Ingram and McCollum, even though it might not be in the traditional sense, that I think that'll be fine. I yeah, I'm it, with also you. Just, think- it also just gets way easier yeah. when you have the number of players who can warp a defense that they do. Yeah. You know, like Zion's not an unbelievable playmaker by any means, but the fact that he can completely break a defense with his downhill gravity, the fact that like when they started playing him as like a point forward in his last healthy season, teams were like double teaming him as soon as he crossed half court because they were so afraid of him getting ahead of steam. That just makes his playmaking reads that much easier. Like you don't have to be an A plus level passer if you're able to do that to opposing defenses. And the gravity is not quite the same with those other three guys. But like, you know, McCollum coming off a screen, like he's going to, teams aren't going to be playing drop against him very often. Same thing goes for Ingram. Valanchunas on the block, like very dangerous to play him in single coverage. So when you're just consistently able to draw two guys to the ball, it becomes a whole lot easier to be a productive playmaker. Uh, It's not like you need to be one of the best passers in the league in order to do it well. And I also think to that point, yeah, they're not going to be starting a traditional point guard. What that also means is they're going to be a really big team. Like starting JV at the five, Zion at the four, Ingram at the three, or Herb Jones at the three, Ingram at the two, and McCollum at the one. Like that's a big team. And for as many, I guess, one-dimensional or deficient defenders there are in that starting lineup, Size can make up for a whole lot at the defensive end of the floor. So I think in that respect, uh, 
they might be able to survive at that end. Yep, agreed. Uh, you ready for my next team? Hit me. It's actually the only other team I had as an over, and uh, it's not very sexy. It's not a contender. But team I think is going to overachieve uh, compared to expectations, the Portland Trailblazers. I think uh, okay. they looked like they were on the verge of a full-scale rebuild and completely tearing it down. You know, they didn't make the playoffs. They weren't a play-in team. But I think they actually got a lot better this offseason. Now, part of that is just going to be that Damian Lillard's coming back healthy. And I think, you know, even just with Dame being locked up now, you know, what is it, through 2026 or through 2027, and those questions gone, he's as committed to Portland as committed can get. He should be healthy after the injury riddle year last year. I think it's one of those years where it's going to be a fun Dame comeback season kind of year. And I think he'll do what he does, you know, usually to carry this team. The addition of Gary Payton II, I think, will help their defense. You just look up and down this roster. Like, again, is it a team that can actually compete in the West? No. But do I think they can compete for a playoff spot and just, and be better than uh, if the entire exercise is based on what I think people's expectations of this team are? Then, yeah, I think they'll overachieve. Also, I love the, you know, adding the the young talent and Shaden Sharp. I talked about that in the offseason, too. How I think the Blazers, I think it's a fine line and it's a tricky exercise to try to straddle the two lines of remaining competitive while also building for the future. I think they've somewhat managed to do that this offseason. Um, and I'm excited to see what this team looks like because the you know the the teardown questions and the Dame future questions are kind of gone now and it's just kind of like all right let's see what this team is and I think what this team is is a team that can actually be kind of exciting you know anyone who's listening to the show knows despite the defensive concerns I'm actually an Anthony Simons fan I think the offense with him and Dame together is going to be fun to watch I do think between Peyton Jeremy Grant I mean Nurkic it might never just be fully healthy again but still with those those guys you know Josh Hart played really well when he got to Portland last season I, I think there are pieces there that can compete defensively and if Dame and Simons do what they do offensively I think the Blazers will be able to catch a lot of teams sleeping this year and I could see this team like surprisingly threatening maybe even for a top six spot in the like, it sounds kind of crazy when you think of the West but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility I, we've seen Dame do it with in my opinion lesser rosters before and I do think the supporting cast around him has sneakily got a lot better yeah I mean the only thing I think about when I'm when I'm trying to figure out if the Blazers can overachieve is I just run down the list of teams in the West and like I easily get right. to nine teams that I think are going to be better than them so okay if I if I'm slotting the Blazers in tenth, like they might be, right. they'll be better than last year. Obviously, they might be a play-in team, but I don't know how much they can realistically overachieve just given the depth of quality squads in that conference. So, um, would you say them getting being a play-in team that then plays their way into the playoffs would be overachieving? I think so. Yeah, yeah. And then I, you know, but that's what I'm saying. I I, I think that they are very capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think the Nurkic point is really important. Like if he can stay healthy, I don't know if people realize this, the Blazers have finished 29th overall in defense the last two years. Both of those years, they've defended at a top 10, two years ago, even a top five level with Nurkic on the floor. Like that's, it's wild how much better they are defensively when he plays. So that, that's a big piece. And, you know, I I like the Grant addition for a number of reasons, even though I think he's a bit overrated defensively. I really like the Gary Payton addition, which we've talked about on this pod before. Um, I I do think they're going to be better defensively. And I think there's a chance 
that with Simons kind of stepping into that CJ role, that there isn't that much of an offensive drop off. Like I don't, this team at its peak was like a perennial top five offense. Maybe they don't get to that level, but Simons is a really, really good offensive guard. And um, they, they have a chance like they're, they're stronger on the wing than I, than they've been. I feel like in a lot of those Dame seasons uh, between Grant and Hart and I guess whatever they can get from Shaden Sharp in his rookie season. Uh, I think they will be interesting for sure, but I, I wouldn't call them an overachiever just because I feel like there are too many teams in the West that are going to be better than them. And one of those I teams... I think that sentiment is why I believe they're going to be an overachiever. <laughs> one of those teams that I do think is actually going to be better than Portland is the Sacramento Kings. Oh, God. So here's where I get into this being a bit of a nebulous exercise because I don't know how good or bad the general public actually expects this team to be, but I think they're going to make the play-in. And how can that not be surpassing expectations given this team's century-long playoff drought? I think they're going to get there. I think they're going to be basically a 500 team that nabs a play-in spot and is playing at least one, call it, postseason game, hanging a banner. (laughs) And uh, I'm just, look, don't ask me how they're going to stop anybody. I don't know but I think the offense has a chance to be really, really good. I, I love the way that Herder and Monk's shooting is going to complement the advantage creation and playmaking of Sabonis and Fox. Uh, I love that they can play inside out with those two guys. I love that they're going to play with a ton of pace. I love the pick and roll possibilities. I just think it's going to be a super fun team to watch, which on its own feels like an overachievement you know if the kings are just a really fun team that's fighting for a play-in spot i think that would just be fantastic and i think it's gonna happen yeah i don't um i listen i think they'll be more fun and interesting than the kings have been in some time but i still i still don't believe in this team as a whole i'm and and now i'm trying to think even Like, even to get to 10th, I'm trying to think of, you know, that would mean they got to be better than at least five teams in the West. And I would pick them comfortably ahead of only three. Rockets, Thunder, and Spurs? Spurs, that's it. Whoa, the Jazz. They're going to be better than the Jazz. Oh, sorry. Yeah, there you go. So they're 11th. So they got to leapfrog one more. Basically, I think it might actually, I mean. It's going to be like them, the Blazers, and the Lakers battling for the 10th seed. Yeah, and the Kings are not winning that battle. Well, we shall see. <laughs> like, I guess if they finish 11th, they have basically met expectations. And if they finish 10th, yeah. they've surpassed. Like, that's that's the bar. Okay, give me, if you were setting an over a, a win total line for the Kings, mm-hmm. what would you set it at? You, I mean, you said you think they're going to play 500. So what would you put it at, 40.5? I wouldn't put it at that because I think that's, that's generous. Because I'm saying I think they're going to overachieve and right. be around 500. So I would set it at like 37 and a half. Cool. I'll take the under. You take the under on 37 and a half? I'm going over. Let's go. What did that fan say? We're winning 40 games. <laughs> yeah. I don't even, was it 40? Is that what the fan said? Or like 35 or something? I think he said way. 40. Uh, well, good luck to you, Sacramento. We're going over 37 and a half, even though, again, I haven't checked like any of the lines at any of the books. So maybe we're like setting it way higher than we need to for this exercise, but. Yeah. For this podcast, 
the over under line for the Kings was set at 37 and a half. I got the over, you got the under. We'll figure out at some point what the stakes are going to be for this bet, but I'm looking sure. forward to watching it play out. Uh, okay, so you said that's it for your for your overachievers? Yeah, I had Philly, New Orleans, and uh, and Portland. And then if you wanted me to rank them like based on confidence levels, I am of, of their, that overachieving compared to expectations. I would go New Orleans. Eh, Philly, Portland doesn't matter between those, but New Orleans would be at the top. All right, I'm going to hit you with one more. Yeah. You might think I'm crazy. All right. I think people I already are, think you're crazy for believing in the Sacramento Kings. I think people are sleeping on the Nets. Like, I totally understand <laughs> why people are down on them and basically dismissing them as a legitimate title threat. But don't you think, just amid all the chaos, that people have maybe forgotten how talented this team still is? Listen, we off the air talked, I think, last week, and I said that if the trio of Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons have an av- an NBA average amount of health, not like the usual Kyrie stuff where he's randomly gone and not Ben Simmons, you know, skipping another season because he got booed at the U.S. Open. If they just have an average amount of NBA health with those three guys together, that's like a f- practically a 60-win team. So... It's it's re- like, listen, I get where you're coming from that technically based on what people think of them, including people like me who just don't believe in this cast of characters specifically ever being reliable. Not that they can't on a talent level get it done, but from a reliability standpoint, I have no faith in them. I get where you're coming from by saying, well, I do have faith in them and therefore I think they're going to overachieve. But my question to you would then be, this means that you are placing your faith in that reliability, Right. Because the the exercise isn't necessarily like, can they overachieve? It's mm-hmm. who you're picking to be overachievers this season. So if you're picking a team with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons, and you know a, a healthier Joe Harris coming back and all these guys to overachieve, and Royce O'Neal, you know, traded for a draft pick, Royce O'Neal. If you're picking that team to overachieve, what you're telling me is that you do believe in the reliability of this cast of characters together. And you do think Kyrie Irving will play enough games. And you do think Ben Simmons can get over whatever block, you know, like mental block he was going through. And you think Kevin Durant can remain durable despite, you know, some troubling signs the last couple of years. Like you believe in all those things. Okay, well, let's say that I believe that out of all of those things, maybe two or three of them can happen and not necessarily all of them. And that maybe that's still enough for them to come close to actualizing their potential in a way that a lot of people don't seem to think is possible. So, okay. Okay, so I I do think... Can, can, can I interrupt one more time? Sure. And just say that it's hilarious that the Nets, quote-unquote, overachieving because of everything, like the gong show and the circus just a, that this team is. They're just a plucky in. underdog, man. I, just, I think it's hilarious that this team, quote-unquote, overachieving also equates to them coming close to, like, actual like realizing their potential no i'm i'm so excited for them to for them to roll with the plucky underdog narrative and then nobody believed in us narrative it's gonna be really fun uh no but i just i I think back to last season when they were like the preseason championship favorite including by i don't remember if you picked them to win the championship but you picked them to win the east right didn't we both pick them to win the title yes so we obviously believed in them then yeah Maybe this team isn't as good as that team was because of what we thought James Harden was going to be and what James Harden actually turned out to be and then what James Harden begot in a trade return. But compositionally, 
this team is not that much different than the one that everyone thought was going to win the championship last year. Well, not everyone, but everyone on this podcast. You can you can argue with it's better fitting with Simmons too. I think about the things like the real limitations last year that we saw in that Boston series. They were so small on the wing. Their perimeter defense was so flimsy. Uh, there was a real lack of rim protection that is still a problem. Like they didn't exactly address that. But in terms of like the size on the wing defensively and like the, the just like being stout at the point of attack, Simmons helps address that. Royce O'Neal helps address that. And then you get Joe Harris coming back. Ideally, you know, you get something resembling a full season from Kyrie. And suddenly, I mean, just like look at the amount of shooting on this team between Kyrie, KD, Joe Harris, and Seth Curry. Like those are four of the 10 best shooters in the world, maybe. And and I'm like, okay, if Ben Simmons can't make it work in this offensive environment, then he legitimately can't make it work anywhere. And I still... I'm sort of holding out like a kernel of optimism about what Ben Simmons can be for this team. Like this, this team is tailor made for his specific strengths and limitations. And so maybe it is, maybe he just can't make it work anywhere. Maybe that is the situation, but I don't think we're there. I think it's going to work to a certain extent. All right. I'm going to ask you the same question you asked me about the Sixers then. So what do you think? Like right now, yeah. going into the season, what is your prediction for how the Nets fare? Big picture wise. So regular season, give me like a, a ballpark wins and place in the East and then playoff success. Well, I don't think, I, this is the team that I don't think you can judge by what happens in the regular season. Like okay. I think so they could give, be a good regular season team. They could like, you know, I, I think they could win 50 plus. Okay. But I think so, it's going to be more about what they can be in the playoffs. In the playoffs, I, I like. I think they can win the East. I think they can okay, be but playing. Would, in would the, you pick them? Would you pick them to win the East? I right wouldn't now? pick them to win the East. No, but I think we're going to be seeing this team play like deep into the playoffs. Okay, are you picking them to make the East Finals right now? Because <sighs> again, it's like it's what you asked me with Philly. Like I'm not disputing anything you're saying. I see where you're coming from. Just like yeah. I guess you could kind of see where I was coming from, from Fi- with Philly. But again, it's the same question you kind of asked. Can me I before. can it's I like, tell okay, you the problem on. though? If you don't think they're going to make the East Finals, yeah, and you don't think a team with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons is even going to be one of the four teams left, like final four teams, like oh okay, they'll be one of the last eight standing. Cool. <laughs> is that really overachieving when you have Kevin Durant, <laughs> Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons on your team? Here's the problem. If I say this, if I say, yes, I'm picking them to make the East final, no. then I am going to have to be rooting for this outcome. No, you don't. You don't have to. You you know how this works, man. Like you, <laughs> Listen. We want to be right. Be, we both want to be right. We Both, both in right. terms of like our personal competition with each other. Yes. And also just, you know, for the sake of our listeners, like we want to prove ourselves to be trustworthy NBA analysts. So if... Of course. Why do you think I'm more invested in, in Alexei Pukashevsky than anyone on the planet? This is my problem. I don't want to get in that deep and have to be like rooting for the Brooklyn Nets to make the conference finals because I predicted it would happen. But that's um, I'm giving you the easy out of like, this is not our official predictions episode. Okay. That'll come, you know, the week of the season starting. I'm telling you, just based on right now, mid-September, you've still got like a month to iron out your thoughts and come up with an official prediction four to five weeks from now. Just based on what you can picture right now, mid-September, if someone said, eh, based on what you're thinking, what's on paper right now, are the Brooklyn Nets in your Eastern Conference Finals this year? Yes or no? No. 
But then how can they be an overachiever? <laughs> because I, what if they make the second round? Like, like, let's say they have a solid regular season. They finish in the top four or five. They make the second round and they have like a really competitive second round series against, say, Milwaukee or Boston. No, that sounds like overachieving for like the New York Knicks. That doesn't sound like overachieving for a team with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons. But I think it is based on what most people seem to be expecting this team to actually do this year, is my point. This is actually why I love this exercise. It's because, it's like you said, it's like completely anecdotal. It's completely Yeah, we can make like, up our own parameters. That's, yeah, it's fine. You're like... During my next rant, you'll spend 15 seconds finding a rando on Twitter who said the Nets are going to win 41 games and be like, see, I'm going against the grid. Yeah, we love to create our straw men on Pound the Rock. But okay, yeah. let's let's leave that segment And our there. tin men. Yeah, well, we, we build these tin men up only to tear them down. Uh, all right, let, let's take a break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about some underachievers. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Cash, we talked about the teams that we think are going to overachieve this season. Let's talk about some teams we feel like might disappoint. Where uh, do you want to start? What's what's a team that you feel like is not going to live up to the possibly fictitious expectations? <laughs> uh, the Dallas Mavericks. The Dallas Mavericks. So this is a team that made the the Western Conference Finals last year. This is a team that I think has the guy that I would probably pick to win MVP, which it might sound strange given that I'm I'm saying his team's going to underachieve, but he's going to win MVP because that usually doesn't add up. But, and, you know, if anyone listened to this podcast, watches our YouTube channel, they know I'm a huge fan of, of Dallas taking on Christian Wood for his contract year. I think... They'll still be good. I think Wood and Luca are a perfect pairing together, all this stuff. And I will say them underachieving won't happen if Spencer Dinwiddie and the returning healthy Tim Hardaway Jr. together can replace what Jalen Brunson left behind. I don't think they can or will. And at the end of the day, when you look at the team and you look at the fact that they lost Jalen Brunson, one of the biggest, if not the biggest problem on this Mavericks team last couple of years, I've talked about it, Luca not having enough help, them kind of failing Luca in a way, is that as good and as transcendent and generational talent as Luka Doncic is, way too much was on his shoulders. And as spectacular as he could be and as far as he could drag this team at the end of the day, he you'd see it. You know, in playoffs past, you'd see him wear down. Last season, okay, they made the West Finals, but like, there was still a clear-cut ceiling on this team because of the limitations around Luka and because of how much was already on his plate. And now that guy just lost his most helpful teammate. And so, again, we're fictitious arguments here. You know, you see people kind of still seeing Dallas as kind, like, kind of still a top-six shoe-in or things like that. I, look, I, I don't think they're going to tumble out of the play-in or anything like that. I don't think they're going to even necessarily be a losing team. But I think it's going to be much, much, much more of an uphill battle for this team to come anywhere close to replicating last year's success. 
than most people think it will. I definitely don't see them being a Western Conference finalist again, barring just the craziest Lucas season you can imagine. And so, yeah, like if I'm picturing this team as like a play-in team that is having to scrape and claw until like the last couple weeks of the regular season to even ensure themselves, quote-unquote, postseason, but not necessarily playoff basketball, I do think that's underachieving, and that's where I'm going with this team. Having said all that, I will say again, I, you know, I teased that Luca's probably my MVP candidate. I think we could see something like, even for his standards, truly special from Doncic this season, when you consider um, what he's doing at the Euro, at Eurobasket right now. And I know in the past, sometimes him playing international in the summer has led to him maybe being a little banged up come training camp. But I think this is different because it's a lot more of a seamless transition. Like last year, there was the gap between international ball and training camp because of the delayed training camp. I think it's more of a seamless transition this year. I think some of that playing his way into shape that we usually see in October and November might have already been done at Eurobasket this year. When you look at how slow he started the tournament and then how great he's been the last few games, you take Brunson away. The usage only goes out. I think like statistically production wise, we're going to see something really, really, really special from Luca this year. I think he can flirt with straight up averaging a triple double. I think he'll maybe join Russell Westbrook and James Harden as the only players to ever post a 40% usage rate in the season. It could be really fun, but on a team level, I think because of the increased burden on Luca yeah. and what they lost with Brunson, they're going to take a step back. Is that fun though? Like, did anyone have fun <laughs> watching those James Harden and Russell Westbrook 40% usage seasons? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. And this is something I've argued even when people were talking about how it's not fun to watch James Harden. And I vehemently disagreed. I don't think fun has to have like the same definition all the time when watching sports, when watching basketball. I think, you know, an offense that moves the ball like crazy and jacks threes and 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 is fun to I, I think that's really fun. But personally, I also think it's fun when just like an incredible singular talent has one of these seasons where he drags a team and gets way more than the sum of a team's parts should get. And even when he does it with like heavy ISO ball and step backs and whatever, I think in its own way that to me is also fun and beautiful, just a different kind of fun and beautiful. And I, I still have fun watching that and I'm going to have fun watching Luka Doncic do that this season for a Mavs team that wins 43 games. <laughs> 43 games probably puts them in the play-in and, and a first round out, yeah? That's more or less what you're expecting? Yeah, and I'm saying, like, like I could see this team even underachieving to the level where late in the season, it's like they're still playing some do-or-die games, you know, just to ensure, maybe, again, maybe not to completely fall out of the play-in, but, like, maybe to ensure they even have home court in the play-in or mm -hmm. something like that. Like, the West is competitive enough, and I think the burden on Luka is great enough with holes in the rest of the roster that I do think they're in that kind of danger, which I think you'd agree would be them underachieving. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because I can only base it, I guess, on my own expectations. And like, I expect pretty much exactly what you do. So I, I guess, you know, if they're, if there's a consensus that they are going to be better than that, then yeah, I, I expect them to underachieve for sure. And I think a big part of it is just like, I don't know, their offense was really good in the playoffs. So maybe that's all that matters. And like come playoffs, they're going to be a good offense no matter what, because they'll go five out around Luca. <laughs> And playoff Luca is just like a completely different animal, but which, by the way, I just want to add, Christian Wood, by the way, can, is part of that five out now. Like the, the to me, one of the beauties of this pickup was that like this is a guy who shot almost forty percent uh, from three on I think about four attempts per game last season. Like he he's an efficient roller who's also a pick and pop threat. He might not be your like 
what you think traditionally of like a five out center or a small ball center, but Christian Wood can do some things inside while still filling that five out role. And I do think that's important. No, offensively, I think it's a perfect fit. He is like the perfect marriage of Kleba and Powell offensively, yeah. where he gives you the rim running and the vertical spacing while also being able to stretch it out. But like offensively, I think he's what they wanted Porzingis to be. Sure. But like you can't play him at the five in the playoffs and survive defensively, at least not for starters minutes. Like I think I mentioned when they got him that I I saw him being kind of like a Bobby Portis for them, you know, coming off the bench and playing like 15 to 18 minutes in the playoffs and being like a star in his role. Like, Yes, Dallas's offense was really good in the playoffs last year, but they made it to where they made it to in large part because of how good their defense was. And if they're going all in on offense and like that involves playing Christian Wood, honestly, at the four or the five, he's been pretty disastrous at both of those spots throughout his career. Then, yeah, I start to have some questions about whether the trade-off is worth it. So, yeah, I think I'm where you are in terms of like, yeah, so Dallas's offense was really good in the playoffs last year. I think they were 18th during the regular season. Like, I don't know that a lot of people realize or remember how mediocre to bad their offense was during the year. And then to lose their second best offensive player and their secondary ball handler when their lead ball handler was already probably a a little bit overtaxed, even though maybe not, honestly. Maybe he was just, maybe that's just the best way to use Luca is to have him be a Helio operator. But if they want to sustain like the offensive success they had in the playoffs last year, I think it's going to come at the cost of their defense. So one way or another, I don't think they're going to be able to get up to the same level they reached this past season. Uh, right. So I think, I think so, that's a so good far. One. I think Pels and Mavs are, are only, I don't, not that you overlap with Mavs, but those seem to be the two so far that we actually agree on really wholeheartedly. For sure. I agree on the Mavs. I didn't pick them just because I didn't think that the expectations for them were actually that high, but, um, but I agree with that sort of philosophy uh, or the idea that that they're going to be worse than they were last year. I, I can't believe I'm going back to this well Uh-oh. after how badly it burned me last year. I think I know where you're going. All right, continue, because I think, all right. My, my single worst take last season was that the Grizzlies were going to take a step back. I took the under on 40 and a half wins, picked them to finish under 500, and they went and won 56 games, finished second in the West, and honestly probably gave the eventual champs more trouble than any other team throughout the playoffs. So what am I thinking picking the Grizzlies to underachieve once again? Why don't you try and explain my own thought process to me, Cash, because I'm, I'm already feeling like this is a mistake. Look, the simple answer is that on paper, this is not a near 60-win team and that they shouldn't be able to replicate that success or come anywhere near it. But the flip side to that is that John Morant's been an NBA player for three seasons and the Grizzlies have overachieved based on preseason expectations in each of those three seasons. And like, yes, eventually there has to be a ceiling. To, like, they can't just keep getting better. They're not going to go 71-1 and one in two years, you know? But like... Ja, and I've talked about this, and I understand that you can't quantify it, but there is some sort of like jaw factor. There is some sort of like it that he possesses that, you know, all franchises want in their superstars that does seem to be even beyond the insane production he obviously does provide on the court that we can't quantify. 
there does some seem to be something about John, the way he elevates this team that like, you know, some superstars just kind of have that. I'm not losing this game mentality here and there, or like whatever it is, you know, teams going through a rough stretch, losing streak. And they're just, you know, in baseball, you've got the pitcher that everyone calls a streak stopper. Cause it's like, no, you get this guy in the mat. Like, you know, the streaks never going to get too bad. Like Josh seems to me like that kind of star. And the team around him is pretty damn good. If not me, like they're not 60 win good, but they are pretty damn good. Jaron Jackson was both of our defensive player of the year picks last year. Like they're good. And Jaron Jackson's injured. Like this is kind of yeah, a, an important... he's out, but what isn't it? I thought, okay. So he, he had a stress fracture in his foot. He had surgery and the timetable from when he got the surgery, which was at the very end of June was four right. to six months. But yeah, that, I means, th- that means he could be back like a couple weeks into the season, or he could be out like through the rest of 2022, basically. Listen, if it if it is a lingering thing, well, first of all, stress reaction in the foot for a big man, always concerning. But if it's the longer, you know, end of that timeline, then very clearly, like, they are in more trouble than if not. But I, part of my research for this exercise, one of the things I looked at was win totals. And I saw the Grizzlies. I don't even remember what the Grizzlies was now, but I did consider ah, I should go Grizzlies under. And then I thought, you know what? Out of faith in John Morant and out of the fact that I've picked them to be underachievers the last two years and they burned me both times and they've been as good as they've been. And, and I didn't end up going with it. I completely see where you're coming from. You know, if, if I wanted to add one more underachiever, I probably would throw the Grizzlies in there. But I don't know, man. It's it's almost one of those things for me is like how many times can I doubt Ja and this team? Well, before I just start believing, I don't know, maybe there's some magic in the water in Memphis and they're going to pull another rabbit out of their hat and I won't be able to explain it. I won't be able to explain it. Yeah, but and I'm will. I'm like look, I, I really like the Grizzlies. They're one, they're one of my favorite teams in the league to watch and I think they're they're unique in a lot of ways as well. So I I want this team to succeed, you know, to the extent that I want any team to succeed in the NBA. And and this is like going back to the Brooklyn thing. I don't like putting myself on the other side of this where like them succeeding means that I have to be like epically wrong yet again. Yeah. But to to your point about Jaw and that sort of it factor and the desire and the just like attitude, like I'm not letting us lose this game. I really only see that at one end of the floor. And at the other end of the floor, I see him getting cooked off the dribble by like Patrick Beverly 15 times in a row in a must-win playoff game. And I just have doubts when their defensive anchor, like the guy who was able to patch up a lot of the holes that they had at the point of attack last season, is going to miss time and maybe be compromised when he gets back. And that's like especially true just because of how precarious the big man rotation is without Jaron. Yeah. You know, like Steven Adams, Brandon Clark was good off the bench last year, but like you sort of extend him and I don't know if that can scale. And then it's like Xavier Tillman, who was pretty disappointing as a sophomore. Like it's not great. So a huge question that I have is like how long Jaron's going to be out for and what he looks like when he gets back, because he is so important to making all this work. And then I look at the fact that they lost two core components of their bench in D'Anthony Melton and Kyle Anderson. And that might not seem like much when you have, you know, John Morant and Desmond Bain and Tyus Jones and all these other great players on the roster. But like, 
their bench was itself a core component of this team's success last season. And they did have a ton of depth to work with. So losing some of it isn't as damaging for them as it might have been for another team. But this is still going to have an effect. And I don't know if that has been given enough credence. Like the fact that they lost two guys and didn't replace them with anything other than rookies. And, you know, how good are those rookies that they got in exchange going to be right off the hop? I'm not I'm not sure. But a lot of this was sort of my rationale for picking them to take a step back last year, because on paper, it seemed like they'd gotten worse. And yet they had these incredible internal development stories that made all of that moot and then some. Do they have that kind of internal jump in them again? I feel like that's what it's going to come down to. That's what they're banking on, at least for now. I think your reasoning is completely rational. And I think, look, if you look at this team on paper and then you look at the rest of the Western Conference and you consider Jaron Jackson might be out a couple months, like you could talk me to this them being a losing team this year, straight up. I could see that. But again, based on the way the last couple of years have gone, I just feel like they're going to find a way. And, you know, maybe find a way this year, given everything we've said, is nowhere near what they've been, you know, from like a inspirational standpoint or what they were even straight up wins and losses last year. So by definition, I do, I think they will underachieve this year. So I'm with you, but it's weird because I feel like what we expect of them is because of what they did last year and what they've done and what they've, you know, the odds they've defied the last couple of years. But when you actually look at this team on paper and, and set what should be realistic expectations for this roster, potentially without Jaron Jackson to start, what I think they'll end up with isn't really underachieving. It's only underachieving based on what most people expect of them. But if you, if well, you look at what they've... No, listen, what, what I'm saying is... the definition it's, Okay, of sorry. It's underachieving based on what they did last year and people just remembering them to find the odds. But you look at this roster and what should be the expectation for them. I think it's fair to I say you have a really young team that goes out and wins 56 games... And has a really competitive second round series with the team that goes on to win the championship. That there is a justifiable expectation that that team is going to continue on this upward trajectory. Or at least not take a step back. Given that it is still very young and seemingly still on the rise. That's that's kind of what I'm basing it on. And I'm looking toward this season. And I don't think they're going to be below 500. But I think they're going to end up with a win total in the 40s rather than the 50s. And very possibly, maybe even likely get bounced in the first round instead of the second. And that would feel like underachievement to me, even though, you know, especially based on what my expectations were for them last year, it wouldn't necessarily be that. All right. I love this discussion. What uh, is it to me now? <laughs> yeah. All right. Can't believe I'm doing this. I'm sorry, Don Riley, but the Miami Heat are underachievers this year. Um, I mean, you've you've thought they would underachieve for the last seventeen years. But... Uh, actually, I thought they were going to be really good last year. Like like preseason, I was really high yeah. on them, and it was um, more so going into the playoffs that I had concerns that they somehow overcame. But I I went into yeah. last season thinking they were going to be really really good. Look, I know that, and the, uh, again, anyone who's into this podcast read my work, watch my videos. You know, you don't like nothing about the heat heat culture. Eric Spolstra, Pat, like. You don't have to explain any of that to me. I believe in it all. I believe in the magic of it all. And I have been one of the people that 
have understood why and have picked the Heat to overcome certain obstacles the last few years because of the the structure in place and the guys that are there and so on and so on. And, you know, in a season where not a lot went right for them last year, they still ended up with the number one seed in what was like the most competitive East Eastern Conference in 25 years. Having said all that, you know, they lose P.J. Tucker, who is really important for them. Yeah, and by Jimmy the way, Butler, didn't didn't fill that hole it, at the four nope, at all. Nope, didn't replace it at all. Jimmy Butler, for as great as he is, and everyone knows what I think about Jimmy Butler, is another year older with a lot of like grinding miles on that body. Kyle Lowry, again, another year older and already over the last year and a half has seemed to be, you know, losing a step, breaking down. Now, all the reports and 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 so forth are that, you know, Kyle's in better shape than he was a year ago. And we have seen in the past when if Lowry does have, you know, maybe a disappointing season, disappointing postseason, takes a, a step back, he usually does come back next season in great shape and like ready to roll. And I don't doubt that he has done that again and will be ready to roll. But the difference is that it's one thing to do that when you're 28 or 31, 32, and doing it when you're, what, 36, 37, whatever Kyle Lowry is now. So I do think age will start to play a factor here. Not replacing PJ is big. You start looking up and down this roster, and again, it's like if Jimmy is not quite the same Jimmy anymore, or if Lowry's ceiling is not what we thought it was even going into last season, the, the, the ceiling for the team obviously isn't the same. And so not even just comparing it to last season, you know, where it's like, well, they're not going to finish first. They're not going to make these finals. It's not just about living up to last year, even just in terms of what, you know, we assume or pretend or are pretending people's expectations of the heat are. I don't think this team's going to live up to them. So underachievers. Uh, do you see them backsliding into like play in territory? Is it Potentially, be- yeah, they could. Yeah. They could. And the fact that we're even having that conversation is like, well, they're clearly going to underachieve. So I feel this way about both the Heat and the team that I want to talk about next. Both Eastern Conference teams that I don't feel like really improved in the offseason. And they're different because, you know, one of those teams is a young team that I think can expect some internal development to propel them forward. And I don't feel that way about the Heat. Like we've talked before about how the two young players that they are really banking on to provide that internal growth in hero and bam maybe don't have that much upward mobility because of their limitations at one end of the floor or the other. Mm-hmm. And in the NBA, like especially in this day and age with the volume of transactions we see every year and the way that these like playoff teams and title contenders are kind of going all in shelling out draft picks to make big additions. It's like, if you're not getting better, you're kind of getting worse and and like again with the heat it's not like they have these young players who they can expect to take these big leaps and fall back on that if anything they're going in the other direction where their best and most important players are older and are more likely to regress so that on top of the fact that they just did not address that hole at the 4 at all i think they're looking at Caleb Martin starting at the 4 now, the most Miami Heat thing, though, would be if Caleb Martin just has this incredible year for them and everyone's talking about, you know, Heat player development. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I'm just saying that would be the most Heat thing ever. For sure. And yeah, I mean, look, this underestimating the Grizzlies and underestimating the Heat has burned me many times in the past. So 
it's totally possible that will happen again, but I just, I don't know. I look at this team and I feel a little bit uninspired. Yeah. Um, So the team that I alluded to, the other team uh, where I feel like underachievement is on the table, and I know this is going to make a lot of our listeners unhappy, the Toronto Raptors. Like I said, in grouping them together with the Heat, they're a much younger team, a team that to me has a lot more room for growth and also a team that, you know, if they decided at any point to try and make a consolidation trade, have way more options available to them on that front than Miami does. I think they're in a way better spot looking big picture. But looking just at that, at like this coming season with the roster that they have right now, you know, barring some kind of big trade they might make down the road, they haven't really addressed any of the holes that existed on last year's roster, right? No. Uh, Otto Porter is a really nice budget addition who will give them some much needed spot up shooting, but the lack of off the dribble creation, the lack of pull up shooting guard play in general, uh, the lack of a traditional big man, which we saw translate to a lack of rim protection and defensive rebounding and like a lack of a legitimate role threat on offense. All of those holes still exist. And I think what I would worry about is a bit of diminishing returns if they just come back and try and succeed with the same formula they used last season, because that was a crazy high wire act that relied on them winning the possession battle to an absurd degree and patching together a semi-functional offense in large part by just grabbing a ton of offensive rebounds and then also forcing a ton of turnovers on defense so they could play in transition constantly And to do that, like running this crazy frenetic defensive scheme without a real rim protector to anchor it, it just feels like a lot to ask for them to do that all again now that the rest of the league has seen them do it for a full season. Like, I thought the Sixers had them pretty well scouted in that first round series, for example. And I wonder if with a year of film, other teams might not get caught flat-footed by them the way that they might have last year. And, I, you know, maybe they'll come back with some new wrinkles or a different style. Like Nick Nurse obviously always has something up his sleeve. But I think their roster composition also limits what they can do to an extent. You know, like I don't see them suddenly becoming a high volume, high efficiency pick and roll team, given the pieces they have on the roster. And I don't know that they can suddenly become a team that plays more conventional drop defense. So as much as they might want to like come back and change things up a bit to not have those diminishing returns, how many different directions can they go in terms of their play style? Like, I don't think they're totally boxed in, but I think there are certain things that are maybe going to be inaccessible to them. It feels like they're banking on internal development to patch those weak spots, but outside of a big leap from Scotty Barnes, like where do you think that's going to come from? So, in terms of addressing the holes on the roster, yeah, I don't I don't think those holes have been or will be filled most likely this season. And I think that's why, like, you know, I, I don't think the Raptors can win the championship this season, right? Because I think there are certain holes there that will hold them back in the playoffs. But I think the talent on this roster, the versatility on the roster, the fact that I do think Scotty Barnes will take another step towards his eventual landing spot, which will be full-fledged superstardom in a few years. Mm-hmm. Um a, hel- a fully healthy season of Pascal Siakam. If you remember last year between him recovering from shoulder surgery and then getting COVID for a second time, Pascal didn't really look like, 
you know, all NBA Siakam until late December, early January. If he's something close to that guy from mid-October, right, and that also decreases the load on Fred Van Vliet's shoulders and he's not as worn down, you know, three, four months into the season, I think all these things together, the fact that the Raptors were patching something together early last season, whereas this year they're coming into the year with, you know, the most roster continuity of any team in the league, Nick Nurse's creativity, the, you know, whatever wrinkles they might add, I think all of that is working in their favor. And I think other than that, they pretty much will do what they did last year. And again, I'm agreeing with you that that caps what they can do in the postseason. But I think everything I talked about, the, the leap I do see coming from Scotty, Precious Achua having another full year of being, you know, what he was last year, if not more. I think they're going to win a lot of regular season games. I think, in fact, in the regular season, the Raptors could be an overachiever. Like, I think, whereas... And I'm not talking because I don't think you can base the expectations based on the team's own fan base, right? Because in that case, like every team, every team's fan base usually over expects from a team. But if you go by the general consensus among NBA, non-Raptors, NBA fans, NBA media, whatever, I think people are probably pegging this team somewhere around where they were last, say like the bottom half of the East playoff mix, right? Somewhere between five and eight. And from that standpoint, I, I... I can't see, I don't really see them underachieving. Again, in a regular season, I could see all the factors I talked about leading them to overachieve. I could see them in the top four in the East. I can see them being such a good regular season team that they threaten for one of the top, top seeds in the East. If you then want to convey that into the playoffs and say where they'll finish in the regular season compared to their postseason ceiling might leave them as underachievers, I could see that. But if we're talking big picture and season as a whole, I don't see this team underachieving. I, in fact, I could see it as the opposite way where they win more regular season games than anyone's really seeing right now other than people in Toronto. Yeah, no, I think what I'm reacting to is the consensus. And maybe it's because I exist in like a bit of a Raptors echo chamber, but like the the thought that this team is primed for this big step forward. And I don't, I think that's coming. I think ev- the East is too good. I think that's that coming eventually, but I don't think it's coming yet. And I just, you know, to to address the Siakam question, like, yeah, he was unbelievable down the stretch of last season. Can he play that well again over the course of a full season? You know, and like, can Fred be as good as he was at the start of last season when he played at an all-star level, you know, and like, to that effect, can Malachi Flynn be a functional backup point guard? Or is it just going to be up to Siakam and uh, like Scotty Barnes, basically, to fill that role once again? And then it was like Van Vliet and, and Siakam each going to have to play like 40 minutes a game again because of the lack of other ball handling options on the roster. And is that going to lead to Van Vliet once again breaking down at the end right. of the season? Like it's just, I have a lot of questions. And then on top of that, kind of what I alluded to with Miami is I feel like a lot of the teams around them in the East got better. Like the Celtics mm-hmm. got better. The Sixers got better. The Cavs got a lot better. The Hawks got better. Uh, the Nets, as previously discussed, should be better. The Bucks didn't really get better, but I don't think the Raptors can really hang with the Bucks anyway. So I just I look at that and in I the don't, playoffs. I don't entirely know where that leaves them in the Eastern Conference pecking order, and I still think they have a good shot at getting a top six seed and avoiding the play in. But I don't see this big step forward for them that a lot of people seem to be anticipating. And I think it's just as possible they wind up taking a bit of a step back. But like, to be clear, this is all like short-term worry and long-term, I think they're going to be totally fine. Yeah. I just think for them to underachieve by definition, 
they'd have to like miss the playoffs entirely or something like like lose the pl- lose up, the play in round right yeah. if they win the play if they end up seventh and lose a competitive first round series yes to Raptors fans I think that'd be disappointing and achievement but if you asked the average NBA fan and or media person I don't think they'd be like oh that's shocking you know what I mean so I. For I would have a hard time saying they're going to underachieve just again because I don't think the expectations are even necessarily that high. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think it's it's kind of like along the lines of with the Grizzlies thing where you see right where a team overachieves initially, and I think a lot of people maybe expect that to lead to just like further, yeah. you know, sustained success or like them continuing on an upward tra- trajectory. Where I don't think it always necessarily works like that. And even to the point about Barnes, like I agree with you. I think superstardom is in his future. But can't you also see him being a player whose like development isn't perfectly linear? Of and course. like it might take him some time to figure out the aspects of his game that are going to lead to that superstardom down the road? No, for sure. Like there's no guarantees, you know, it's going to be a a straightforward, like upward trajectory year to year every year. Most likely it won't be because few guys other than the absolute greats, you know, have that. But I think there will be some market improvement. And I I do think he'll continue on that path. But my question for you before I quickly get to my last under is so last season going into the year with, you know, Siakam coming off the surgery and also him coming off, you know, the rough patch before in the season and a half before and all this stuff. I think going into last year, no one was really sure who the Raptors best player was right now, early in the season, it quickly emerged that it was Fred Van Vliet. By the end of the season, I think everyone was in agreement that Pascal Siakam was still the team's best player made another all NBA team. I want to ask you this, not who's the best Raptor right now, because I think we'd both say it's Pascal Siakam. At the conclusion of this season, whenever that may be between April and June for the Raptors, who do you think you will say is the best Raptor six to 10 months from now, basically, when this season's over? Kevin Durant. (laughs) Uh, No, in all honesty, I think it will still be Pascal. All right. I think that... I'm a a huge Fred Van Vliet believer. And I think what he is able to do at the defensive end is so valuable for his position just because of how low I think the bar is set for defense at that position. Mm -hmm. And I think as much as I will say sometimes, like there's only so much impact a guard can have on team defense overall, what his malleability defensively, despite his lack of size, allows the Raptors to do at that end of the floor is like really, really important. But I think he is pretty close to maxing out his offensive utility if he yeah. wasn't already there last season. Agreed. I just think Pascal has, there are always going to be more options available to him in terms of like the skill set that he has already built out coupled with his incredible size and wingspan. You know, like he's already gotten to a point where like down the stretch of that season when he went on that crazy heater, he was like automatic from the middle of the floor. Yeah. And obviously, you know, it's it's still an open question what he is going to settle in at as a three-point shooter. Like, can he improve above the break? Can he improve as a pull-up shooter? Like we saw him do it from the mid-range last year. Can he stretch it out to three? But I just think the ceiling's always going to be higher for a player like that. And I, I don't know how much better Fred can get offensively given... Like, we know what he can do behind the arc. We know how far he has come as a pull-up shooter and just, like, what that means for him as a pick-and-roll operator. But it's been six seasons now of him shooting, like, 
41-ish percent from two-point range. Being a really poor finisher at the rim, he's gotten better from floater range and long mid-range, but like being at best average from those zones. I just don't know if suddenly we're going to see him take that step where he becomes a really effective inside the arc scorer. I think that's that's still going to be missing from his game. Whereas I feel like Siakam has the potential to become a legitimate three-level scorer in a way that I just yep. don't think is ever going to happen for Fred. I don't disagree with anything you said. I just think that uh, you made this more of a Siakam-Fred thing when you should have been making it a Siakam-Barnes thing. Having said that, I agree with you that Pascal Siakam... Was that the thought be, in your mind that like you think Barnes is going to be kind of nudging into that conversation by the Nudging into it, yes. I, th- I, think, I, I think he's not good. Whether it happens this quickly or not, obviously, is the bigger question. I agree with you that I still think by the end of the season, we're saying Pascal Siakam is the best Raptor. By 2024... I think Scotty could could have that yeah. uh, could have that mantle. Uh, okay, so let's wrap up that conversation. Oh, sorry, you had you had one more. Did you have one? More? One more under, yeah. yeah but I'll okay, be quick. Uh, I'll be quick with it and just say uh, the Chicago Bulls. They were gangbusters in the first half of last season. Mm-hmm. I think at the exact midway point of the season, they were twenty-seven and fourteen, and in first place in that Eastern Conference that I said was more competitive than any East in the last quarter century. Injuries were also were obviously a big part of why they slid so much in the second half. They were a losing team in the second half of the season. They ended up finishing sixth, barely avoided the play-in. You know, were a pretty easy out for the Bucks in the first round. They're not going to be as bad as they were in the second half last year. They won't be anywhere near as good as they were in the first half. Also, very unfortunate for them, but very important in their you know season-long big picture outlook. That Lonzo Bolsov is really concerning, man. The guy had arthroscopic knee surgery in January. I believe when he first underwent it in January, the timeline was six to eight weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Like eight months later, he's iffy to even start training camp and there's still discomfort in that knee. So that's very concerning. Lonzo's very important to them. There's still obviously talent there on paper with Levine and DeRozan and Vooch and you know DeRozan had the year he had last year. I think they're going to still be good offensively if Caruso's healthy and some of the other pieces they got. I think they're you know there's still a pathway to compete more defensively, but overall, given especially some of the East teams that you mentioned getting better, I think the Bulls' chances of competing with that you know, top couple tiers of the East is gone. You know if they if they actually had a chance to do that last year or not, that's gone. I think they're much much more in that kind of group of teams just trying to avoid the plan and i don't even think they're going to do that and if you had to ask me now charlotte made the play in last year so really i guess if you ask me one of the top 10 from the east falling out it would be charlotte but out of the teams that were like more competitive or maybe if you want to ask me out of the six teams that actually made the playoffs outright without having to go through the play-in which one of those six could you see missing the entire thing altogether this year it would definitely be chicago yeah i could see that i think they're in line for regression in a disappointing season so they're my last under yeah, I think um, DeRozan's going to be really hard-pressed to replicate what he did last season. And the Lonzo stuff, I agree, is super concerning. Their defense kind of tanked without him last year. And granted, him and Caruso were out at the same time. So it wasn't just the Lonzo injury, but he was really important to keeping that defense respectable. And that's, yeah, if he's compromised or just like this injury thing drags on and he can't be an important part of that team. That really, really hurts. So I'm in agreement on that. Uh, Let's leave that there. Cash, I know from listening to your uh, episode with Mason Ginsburg that you have a fan shout out that you've been looking forward to getting to. 
So I will give you the floor to uh, read this one out. All right, Wolf Wand. Jeremiah Lipscomb. Uh, not sure if he's actually in DC or anybody. clearly a Wizards fan. Wrote to me on Instagram in mid-July. So sorry it took so long to get to this, Jeremiah. Saying he loves the, po- the pod. We always give great insight. And, he, you know, he, he we make him feel like someone out there is holding the Wizards accountable for their baffling ineptitude. And then it just gets really good. After listening to your most recent podcast, Wolf on asked how Wizards fans would react if Bradley Beal straight up told the media he's only in it for the money and doesn't really care that much about winning. Obviously, I can't speak for the entire fandom, but for me personally, I would have rather lost him for nothing than give him the Supermax and have him flaunt around like he's going to be our version of Dirk. I would have rather he got dressed up like mid-90s Deion Sanders raining $100 bills on the press yelling, show me the money. Giving a player who's only made All-NBA one time and no trade clause is some Ernie Grunfeld shit. Like you said, I don't blame him for getting his money, but to be this delusional about the state of the team is batshit crazy. As much as I want to like Tommy Shepard, he's nothing more than a fraud. He's literally Ernie 2.0. Giving Bertans all that money, thank God for the Mavericks, is an Ian Mahimi kind of signing. This is just like when they panicked and matched the Nets offer sheet for Otto Porter Jr. Utter incompetence from the front office. It's like we're destined to toil in mediocrity and have a team composed completely of back-end lottery picks. Anyways, thanks for letting me vent, and hopefully my perspective will give more insight on how fans of the Washington Clowns think and feel. Sorry for making this so long, but I had a lot to say. Jeremiah, no, don't ever apologize for such a message. Thank you for the message. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for being a loyal listener, but thank you for that message. Thank you for holding your Washington Wizards responsible. And uh, thank you for providing us with just a great bit of levity here at the end of a 90 minute podcast. And um, I hope the shout out in the end was worth the long wait. Sorry to make you wait. The usual call out now that Wolf and I are both back to our regular programming here. If you are a fan of Pound the Rock, if you're listening, whether this is your 257th time or your first ever time listening today, We love hearing from you. And as our usual listeners know, we love then shouting out our listeners. So hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfon at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram like Jeremiah did, joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know where you listen from, how long you've been listening. And then like Jeremiah did, you can vent about whatever you want. You can crap on your favorite team. You can crap on us for crapping on your favorite team. We don't care. Just hit us up and we would love to get you a shout out as we have Jeremiah and as we have hundreds of people over the last couple hundred episodes. We want to keep that going. So hit us up. The new season of Pound the Rock is here. The new season of the NBA is almost here. We gave you a 90 minute podcast to enjoy. Hit us up and let's keep the shout outs going in season five. Point five of Pound the Rock. Yeah, and I'll just say, I mean, obviously we give shout outs to pretty much everybody who writes in in whatever form they do so. It doesn't have to be like a whole long rant like Jeremiah just right. gave us, but I have to shout him out for just a textbook example of how to appeal to us specifically and just knowing his audience. <laughs> yeah. Because in that rant, we got the word fraud, we got the word clown, we had... Uh, an Ernie Grunfeld reference, bagging on the Wizards in general. I mean, just a great job all around of knowing your audience, Jeremiah. So thank you for that. And looking forward to all the future shout outs that we're able to give on this show. And um, thankful, as I always say, to all our listeners who have kept us going into season 5B or season 6 or whatever we're calling this. 
Uh, we really appreciate you guys, and we're very much looking forward to another great season. So let's uh, let's put a bow on this, Cash. Uh, we will be back next week with some other kind of season preview content. But until then, thanks again to all our listeners. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. <laughs>